Hello, and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 7 of the podcast, and with Easter being this past Sunday, we felt it appropriate to pause from our Bible study series and share with you the sermon Father Ward preached on the resurrection titled, What If Christ Was Not Raised? As always, we want to thank you for listening, and we pray you are blessed by what you're about to hear as we turn it over now to Father Ward. Yes, Lord, we thank you that you are risen from the dead. We thank you for the joy that you have given us in that living hope, that living reality. And we thank you that you live in us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that your spirit would continue to quicken our spirits, that as we reflect on your great work of life, of your great works of transformation, that we would be drawn closer to Yourself and that we would continue to follow where Christ has led the way. We thank You and we ask it in His name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah! Christ is risen! risen I think sometimes we uh, take those words for granted. It is certainly a blessing that I can shout those words from the housetops in our land and not have to be worried about being arrested or losing my job. The opposite was true in Soviet Russia for over 70 years. In fact, at the, uh, the end of the 915 service, one of our mem- members, Adam Kowalik, who is Ukrainian, he told me the story of his grandfather before he came to the United States back in the 30s. During the Stalinist purges, his grand, many of the Ukrainians were either Orthodox or Catholic, and uh, his father uh, was a basket weaver and had made a, a cross out of the, uh, the same material that he makes the basket. He made the baskets out of, and he hid the cross behind a picture because you weren't supposed to, you weren't allowed to worship, you weren't allowed to express your faith during that time. And somehow, as maybe it was his grandmother who had said something, well, someone in the village reported his grand, uh, on his grandfather. And so the secret police, probably the NKVD, the precursors to the KGB, uh, came and, and bashed the door down and ended up stabbing him three times just for taking the cross, stabbing him three times and leaving him for dead. And uh, Adam's seen the scars. Of course, his grandfather is now with the Lord. Uh, and his grandfather would tell him about us here in the States that we don't know how good we have it. But the truth of the matter is, is that believers in those lands were severely repressed. They were oppressed. So isn't it interesting that today, though, that in Russia they broadcast the services. They have Vladimir Putin, and whether you like him or not, the, pre- the president, President Vladimir Putin, claims he's a Christian. He said that his, he was in the KGB, we all know that, his mother secretly baptized him. And, you know, obviously, I don't know when his faith came about, but they broadcast Putin and others during the service when the bishops of the church and the cathedral there in Moscow say, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. The leaders say, Hallelujah, the Lord is risen indeed. 
or the Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. You know, you know those those words. So, and that's not just true in former the Soviet Union, but throughout communist lands, the church is on the move in many parts of our world. You know, in which nation the Church of Jesus Christ is growing the fastest? Which nation do you think that is? I know most people say China, but it's actually Iran. That's right. In Iran, the church is growing the fastest. There are now two to three million believers in Iran. You think, how in the heck can that happen with the mullahs being in charge? Because the underground church, it's because of the move of God. But Iran is seeing a great move of the Lord. The church is growing there. The second nation behind Iran is Nepal. Little Nepal, the Himalayas, close to the gospel until a couple decades, and, and it's, the church is growing. And then after that would be China. Places where you do have to worry about being arrested and losing your job if you get too public with your faith. So why are the words, Christ is risen, so life transformational? What is it that makes them ring true for so many? Why do they rise above any other in human history? The Apostle Paul tells us why in his letter to the Corinthian church. He answers the question, what if Christ in fact had not been raised from the dead? What would that mean? In other words, Paul demonstrates why the resurrection is real by showing what would be true if Christ did not rise from the dead. So I'd invite you now to turn to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know it's in your bulletins, but it's more helpful to look at it in the Scriptures because you've got the verse numbers. It'll be easier to follow along. That would be page 1152 in your pew Bibles. For those of you who have a Bible yourself, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin reading at verse 12. And for a brief moment, we'll go back to verses uh, 3 and 4. But most of our time will be spent verses 12 through 20. Paul writes in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Just as a background, Paul is writing believers. He's not writing pagans. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the church to correct false beliefs that have crept in. And the false belief is not that there is no afterlife. In fact, most of the ancient world believed that when you died, your spirit went on to the next realm, but the body was done for. In fact, in some teaching in the ancient world and in Eastern religion, they teach actually the body is not a good thing. But that is not what Christ showed us by virtue of Him coming out of the grave. He showed us that the body is a good thing and that, in fact, God doesn't just redeem our spirit and soul, but He also redeems our bodies. And so there was this teaching that crept in the church that there is no resurrection of the body. And so Paul is correcting that, among other things. Now, it should be noted that all the religions of the world do not teach that Jesus rose again. They teach that he's dead and buried, or maybe he just ascended into heaven. Islam teaches that he wasn't that, uh, because they recognize Jesus as a great prophet, by the way. I don't know if you know that or not. But Islam teaches that Jesus didn't, it would be dishonorable for him to die on the cross. He seemed to die, but he didn't really die on the cross. Of course, then you have many other folks who simply don't believe it's possible. They don't even believe in the afterlife, let alone a body being raised from the dead. They say Jesus may have been a good man and a great moral teacher, but he never came out of the tomb. Well, if that were the case, Paul says there are six tragic consequences, six terrible realities that we all need to face if there had been no resurrection. 
And we're going to see all six now. Verse 14. Or verse 13, actually. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. That word vain means futile, empty, with no purpose. In other words, it's a colossal waste of time. We are just wasting our time by being here. I'm wasting my time by preaching, and you are wasting your time by listening. And we all should be doing something else. So the very first of these tragic realities is that our preaching, sharing the good news, is useless. There is no benefit. There is no blessing if Christ is still in the grave. Why? Because the heart of the Gospel is this. It is found in the first few verses of chapter 15. Look now, I said we're going to go back to 3 and 4. Look at what Paul says. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That means that He fulfilled the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. Wherever you see Scriptures in the New Testament, it's not a reference to our entire Bible, even though ultimately it would be, because Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. But at that time, Scripture that they were using would be our Old Testament. The Law of the Prophets. And so, according to the Law and the Prophets, they predicted the coming of the Messiah, the suffering servant, who would die for us, who would rise and be victorious. So Paul says, And I delivered to you a first importance where I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day. This is the Gospel, Paul writes. Christ didn't just die, He rose. For if you have no resurrection, you have no Gospel then. If you have no Gospel, you have no good news. That kind of preaching is profitless. And there are bishops. You say, well, wait a minute, Father Ward. Is that really a big deal in the church? Yes, it is. I don't know if you know this or not, but you have bishops in some churches. You have priests and pastors in some churches that don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They believe that Jesus died, but He was buried. It was His Spirit that went on. And it's the Spirit that goes on in us. We all know that's kind of ridiculous, right? Uh, what kind of faulty thinking is that? And yet they do. We left a church, the Episcopal Church, and a lot of those guys... Women believe that kind of thing. It's contrary to the Word. As far as I'm concerned, they should just get out of the pulpit and get an honest job. (laughs) That's what they ought to do. Jesus didn't come out of the grave. Our preaching is in vain. It is useless. But then Paul mentions something else. Let's continue to read in verse 14. Not only is our preaching vain, but your faith also is vain. That is, you are trusting something that doesn't deserve your trust. I mean, who wants to put your faith in Jesus if He is dead? It's not enough to believe that Christ died for your sins if you don't believe that God raised Him also from the dead. That's why Paul writes in Romans 10, verse 19, if you confess with your mouth, if you want to be saved, how? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Did you catch that ending? Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. But if you don't believe that God raised Him from the dead, then your faith is futile, it's foolish, it's vain. You see, the difference between Jesus and everyone else is that everyone else who's gone before us is dead, gone, and buried. All the, all the founders of all the world's religions, they live, they died, they're dead. Jesus, on the other hand, lived... He died and He rose again. He is not in the tomb. He is on a throne. And He's coming back again. It's why the Apostle Paul wrote 
In Romans 1.4, the very beginning of Romans, that great epistle, he said of Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So how do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do I know that He can save me and He can save you? How do I know that the Bible is true? How do I know the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ? He rose again. You do not serve a dead Savior. A dead Savior is nobody's Savior. There's a little boy who was in a classroom and the teacher gave this assignment to the students. Write an essay on the world's greatest living man. Some wrote about the president. Others wrote about members of Congress. That must have been a long time ago. Some wrote about people in the entertainment world. Some wrote about people in the sports world. Some wrote about scientists and philosophers, but this little boy wrote about Jesus Christ. When the teacher received the paper, she said, son, that's a nice paper, but you misunderstood the assignment. I said, the world's greatest living man. He said, but teacher, he is alive. He is alive. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. If Christ is dead, he is useless. Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. But there's a third thing that would be true. Paul writes in verse 15, Moreover, we were even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ. Did you notice what Paul says? He doesn't say that we were mistaken. No, he says that if, it, that if He has not been raised, Paul is a false witness. you know what a false witness is? That's somebody who gets in a courtroom and knowingly, willingly, and deliberately perjures himself and becomes a liar. That's a false witness. He commits perjury. He tells a lie. He is a false witness and he knows better. Paul is saying that we have testified that Jesus Christ is alive. We have seen him. In fact, when we read the gospel accounts, they're more than just history. They are eyewitness experiences of what the disciples saw, heard, touched. We see that after Jesus rose from the dead, they ate with him, they fellowship with him, they talked with him. Again, they touched him. Remember, Jesus said, See my hands and feet to Thomas. And Jesus took a piece of broiled fish. He wasn't a ghost, he wasn't some nebulous spirit. It was him, the same body that hung on the cross, but now it was transformed. Well, you might ask, How do you know that they didn't just make it up? How do you know they didn't just cook up a good story about Jesus Christ to save face? You know how I know? Most of the disciples paid with their very lives for their testimony, for their faith in Jesus. They suffered, they bled, they died because they knew and believed that Christ is alive. You see, hypocrites and martyrs are not of the same stuff. A man may live for a lie, but hardly a person will knowingly die for a lie. But those who saw Jesus, and at one point we read here that 500 people saw him at one time, you don't, 500 people can't see the same hallucination. And they testified, they said, he's alive, we know he's alive, and many of them sealed their testimony with their own blood. And then what about the Apostle Paul? Here is a leading Jew, a Pharisee, a zealot for Yahweh, one who persecuted the church, the followers of the way, one who put Christians to death. How do you account for the conversion of St. Paul, who originally was Saul, the leading Pharisee and persecutor of the church? But what happened to Saul as he was on the road to Damascus? Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, appeared to him. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus Christ. 
And Saul was converted that, at that very moment. That murder of the Lord caused blindness upon him. And then Saul asked the second most important question that every man, woman, and child needs to answer in this life. The first is, who is Jesus? The second is, Jesus, what would you have me do? And that's what Paul asked Jesus. And so the Lord changed Saul's name to Paul, and this leading Jew became the greatest of all the apostles, <laughs> preaching the good news to the Gentiles, to those who weren't Jewish, of, back, of Jewish background. How do you account for that conversion, that transformation? Someone who is so against Jesus, now a follower of Jesus, but not just a follower, but an apostle, a proclaimer of Jesus. And so if Jesus is still in the grave, we're faced with this conclusion. Those disciples were liars and fakers, hucksters and fraudsters. So are you going to tell me that the Apostle Paul was a con artist or that Peter was a swindler or that the Apostle John was a deceiver and these men have pawned off on the world a colossal fraud? I don't think so. Common sense says no. But you'll have to accept that conclusion if Christ is still in the grave. Now there's a fourth tragic reality if Christ did not come out of that grave. Look again now at verse 17. Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The fourth problem is we still have the sin problem. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Sin still reigns. What is sin? Sin is simply our preconditioned tendency to want to do what we want when we want, in disregard to the benefit of those around us, and only in disregard to God's will. It's my way or the highway, and we're all prone to that. That's the sin problem. And there's three ways you can address your sin problem. First is you can deny it. There are people who are like, I don't really have a sin problem. I don't need to follow any God. I don't need to help. Oh, I can help you, right? That that's the goal of the second way to answer. But there's, the first way is, I don't have a sin problem. I'm going to ignore it. Might makes right. Who has the power makes the rules. I'm going to do what is right in my own mind. I'm just going to go my merry way. I'm going to live my life according to what I want to. So that's how you can, you can address your sin problem. Just ignore it. The second is to try to overcome it. Try to be the best possible person you can be. You know, try to do good. Try to stop doing what you shouldn't be doing. Problem is, you're still going to die a sinner. And at the end of the day, if you look at all the religions, you can put them all in one bottle and they all teach some form of the following that comes from this second response. You hope you're good enough and you get in by following the rules, the traditions of the God or higher power or whatever way of life you want to follow. You just hope it's enough, but you're not totally sure. That's the second way to deal with this sin problem. Just try to, through your own willpower, be a better person. And let the chips fall where they may. But then there's a third way to deal with our sin, and that is to acknowledge that you can't do it on your own. That the only one who can really change you is God. It's only through His grace and mercy that we have forgiveness. And it's only through what He's done through Jesus Christ by paying and taking our sin on Himself that we can truly be forgiven, that we can truly be cleansed, that we've got to get on the gospel shift, the gospel train of transformation if my sin and your sin is going to be truly taken care of. And that's exactly what Christ did on the cross for us. 
but only if He was raised from the dead. Listen now what Paul says in Romans 4.25, He, that is Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions, transgression is another word for sin, it means the type of sin where we identified as breaking God's laws, we're transgressing God's laws, and so Jesus was delivered over to death because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now justification means that we are justified before God, just as if you've never sinned, that God overlooks our guilt because He is accepting the payment for our sin by virtue of what His Son has done. But His Son cannot truly be His Son. Sin cannot truly be paid for if Jesus is still in the grave because if Jesus is still in the grave, He's no different than you or me. He's a mere mortal. What vindicates Jesus, what confirms the fact that He has the power of salvation is the fact that He rose from the dead. It is God's authenticity, His stamp of approval on who Jesus is. Without the resurrection, there is no hope for heaven. That Jesus died for you is not important unless He also rose from the dead. No resurrection, no Savior, no Savior, no forgiveness, no forgiveness, no justification. No justification, no cleansing, no cleansing. The penalty of your sin is still upon you. And you are, you are destined for death. You are destined for judgment. You are still in your sins. But praise God, we aren't still in our sins, right? Praise God. As the song that Casting Crown sings goes, the refrain, living He loved me, dying He saved me, buried He carried my sins far away, rising He justified, freely forever. One day He's coming, O glorious day, O glorious day. Thank God we're no longer in our sins because we have a risen Savior who has paid the price for our sins. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're not going to sin again. What I'm saying is now you have the remedy to know that you can be forgiven and that you can overcome your sin. But without Christ, there is no remedy. Now let's look at the fifth consequence. If there be no Easter, if Christ is still in the grave, not only does sin reign, but something else reigns. Look now at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What's that talking about? That's talking about death. If Christ has not been raised, then death still has dominion. Death has the final say for you and for me. Your mother, your father, your children, your loved ones, if they aren't already, they're going to be dead and gone. You'll never see them again. They are in the grave to rot, to decay. That's it. It's over. It's ended. Death is won, and life is not just a colossal bad dream, but it's a nightmare. Now, falling asleep, was a euphemism for death used in the ancient world, and also the Christians used it. That the body would die, but the spirit would go on to the netherworld. But brothers and sisters, there's no guarantee that this happens unless you know the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because by His resurrection, He verifies that not only is there life after death, but that there is a Creator who has given us life, and ultimately there's a Creator that we're accountable to. I mean, think about that for a moment. Are you going to tell me that this universe was just created to run down to the grave? That the intelligence that made everything intense for all of it to just die? That we are born crying, live complaining, and die disappointed? And tell me that's it? All we can hope for is to maybe stay well enough until old age takes us, or we get sick and sicker and sicker, and then we die. It all ends in a veil of tears, and we rot and decay in the ground. That's it. Am I supposed to believe that? That some great grand scheme of things that made an entire universe and created something called man is to cause us all to just die. 
that death is a monster that has the ultimate power and dominion. No, sir, I can't believe that. I can't accept it. In fact, I'm glad that I can look back at my ministry of nearly 25 years and I can say that despite the many brothers and sisters in the faith that I've had to say goodbye to, death is not the end. As we say together at the close of the burial liturgy of the church, all of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave we make our song, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. I'm blessed and grateful that I have that kind of good news to preach. I'm so glad that it doesn't just end in a coffin, surrounded by tears and sorrow as we say goodbye, never, never, never to see our loved one again, never to meet again. A seminary professor lost his wife when she was a young woman. She died an untimely death. They had a little boy, preschool age. And so the father took his son to the funeral home to see the body of his mother. They had embalmed her beautifully. She was there almost lifelike. The little boy looked at his mother and the dad tried to explain to him this inexplicable thing called death and to tell the little boy that they would not see mommy again until they saw mommy in heaven. The little boy couldn't understand death. He wasn't familiar with it. He said, no, daddy, you're wrong. Mommy is just asleep. I've seen her like that plenty of times. She's asleep. She can wake up. And then the little boy began to say, wake up, mommy, wake up, mommy, mommy, wake up. And with tears in his eyes, the professor put his hand on the shoulder of his little boy and said, son, you can't wake her up. But when Jesus comes, he'll wake her up. Oh, yes, Jesus will. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There's your comfort. There's your hope. But of course, if Christ has not been raised, then not only does death have dominion, the final say, the ultimate power, but your future is futile. That's the sixth and final tragic consequence if Christ has not been raised. Let's now look at it right here. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, remember hope is looking forward to the future. The blessed hope is not a wishful kind of thinking hope. It's what God's going to do in the future for us. But if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, Paul is saying we're a bunch of fools. We have a lousy future. For those of us who believe we are going to be faced with the biggest of all disappointments, it means that none of God's promises are true. The good times are but for a moment and it's only going to get worse. There is no hope. There is no purpose. We are just islands in the sea without a compass and without a destination. The future is futile if Christ has not been raised. But praise God, Christ has been raised Notice what Paul says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And because Christ has been raised, my preaching, our preaching, is not in vain. No, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because Christ has been raised, your faith is not vain. It isn't futile. No, it has the power to move mountains. Because Christ has been raised, we are not deceivers. No, we are witnesses of ultimate truth. 
Because Christ has been raised, we are no longer in our sins. But we now have forgiveness. We have all that we need to overcome sin. Because Christ has been raised, we are no longer to fear death. We are no longer overcome by death, but we are more than conquerors. We're victorious over death. Because Christ has been raised, our future is not futile. Our future is fabulous. Yes, indeed. The Lord has taken the sting out of sin. He has taken the gloom out of the grave. He has taken the dread out of death and He has given us a hope that is steadfast and sure. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified freely forever. One day He's coming. O glorious day. O glorious day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforminglivestogetherpodcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash transforminglivestogetherpodcast and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless.